Good morning, everyone. Here we are. Try that again. Good morning. We're going to continue on with our fantastic series that we have on identity. Just a, just a progression of just wonderful services and messages that we have. And we're going to continue on that same process and dealing with the concept of transformation. And since we have so much to cover, we're just going to just jump into it. Like when you off of a pier, you know, you don't wade your feet into the water. You just jump off. We're going to do that. So I'm just going to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. And let's begin reading together. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Our message in about 30 seconds, I'm going to give it to you right now, basically comes down to this. God's presence in our lives invokes change. There's a new standing, a new nationality, a new perspective, moving from darkness to light in our thinking, a new identity, a sense that we belong, a new circumstance, moving from mercy, a lack of mercy, to having mercy. And because of these positional, circumstantial, and inceptual changes, it provokes a behavioral change in us. The way we were before, where we get angry or dealing with greed or lust or envy or a whole world of narcissism that we have, a universe that's all about us, all about me, begins to change as your focus starts to move from darkness to light and you start to see the world around you with love and with mercy and with a sense of desire to share and to care and to have humility. That is transformation. And that all sounds good, but here's the question. What does that really mean? When you wake up tomorrow morning and you consider this verse how can you actually gain traction with that on your daily life? I actually have problems with my tires. And this week, I bought brand new tires. These big, thick, mud snow tires, just in time. I've got traction now. In the same way, we want to put on those mud lug tires right now and gain some traction in this very important portion of Scripture. Because it deals fundamentally, first of all, with the concept of Holiness. It is implied and says directly in this portion of Scripture. But the only problem is, what, what is holiness? I mean, when do you ever, on your daily life, ever use the word holiness in your conversation? Unless in some kind of derogative sense. It's, it's really not in our vocabulary. And we don't really understand it. And the fact is, at the end of the day, maybe we don't want to know it. Because it sounds old-fashioned and out of step. Consider these words. Holiness conjures up musty images of revival meetings, old-time religion, 
along with stern prohibition against drinking, dancing, and playing with cards. Yet even in our era of techno-savvy megachurches and postmodern emerging churches, holiness is often associated with moral behavior such as sexual purity. While we've cast off the old legalistic notions of holiness, we've merely replaced them with our private moralistic notions. We act as if holiness were outdated. Is holiness outdated? Is it irrelevant? Perhaps we avoid talking about holiness because we feel that our biblical teaching to reach those in our culture with relevance is somehow in the way of that heart message with God. But that's not the case. Holiness is critically essential, very tangible, affecting actually identity change in us because the heart of holiness ultimately is about relationship. That is the very core behind holiness. And do we not live in a culture that wants to be connected? Do we not live in a world that has social media at the heart of it, it seems? Holiness is, in fact, very relevant. So perhaps the question is not that holiness is relevant, but perhaps our mechanism of communication is out of step and irrelevant. Actually, we had a leadership meeting a couple months ago, and I was blown away. Pastor Jeff shared something with us about the culture of the new generation of teenagers and adolescents are coming up. Their attention span, I was always told our attention span is like 20 minutes. The attention span now with things like Snapchat and all the things that are out there in social media has been reduced to eight seconds. So when you want to impact someone with Christ, it has to be like a drag car race. you got to hit them fast. you got to hit them hard, as it would be. And not in a real way. I mean, figuratively, of course. So that they have that, you get their attention. May God help us to deliver the power of his grace in people's lives in the pace that we live in. Amen? But it doesn't actually help us at this point understand holiness. So what is holiness? Well, I took a picture of a couple items in my house. You got two cups there. Holiness has something to do with the term separation. Okay, the kind of the lousy, kind of crappy looking cup there, the red one, white one, that's my favorite cup. It's metal. Okay, I can bang nails in with that thing. It's basically your average common item in the kitchen. But the other one, that's bone china, man. Okay? It's special. I mean, it's an heirloom. That stuff is like 70 years old. It's from my mother. And oftentimes, where is china left? A lot of times, it's not even in the kitchen. It's in a different room. It's in the dining room, behind a glass wall, out of touch with everything else. And all the lousy stuff is in the kitchen. All the ordinary stuff is in the kitchen. But the china is separate It almost has a connotation of a term of holiness to us. But consider this. What is the purpose of China? It is designed to entertain guests and facilitate a dining experience that helps build memory and promote intimate connection. That is our first hint into trying to understand holiness. Our second hint to understanding holiness 
It's not asking what the question of holiness is exactly. But who is God? Who really is God? I mean, not in a long, drawn-out answer. I'm talking like God is, now fill in the blank. Well, it says this in 1 John, that God is love. And that is true. But in Hebrews, it says that God is a consuming fire. That doesn't sound very comforting. And how can God be absolutely love and this fearfully awesome being that is described as consuming fire at the exact same time? It's kind of confusing, but wait, it gets even better. God is light. He's also the creator. God is spirit, and at the same time as being spirit, he's also a rock and a refuge in moments of difficulty. It seems like there's all these contradictory terms, but they all belong together. So what is the one phrase, the one word that we can try to describe God in some holistic sense that covers all the parameters that we understand who God is and beyond? For us to understand that, we have to go to a couple of word pictures that are portrayed for us in Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah in the very throne room of God. High and exalted, he's described. The very edges of his cloak spread and filled the temple of God's presence. And there's these pretty spooky-looking beings. They're called seraphim, winged creatures. But they use two of their wings to fly, and the other four wings, they cover themselves, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It says that the ground shakes under the worship, and Isaiah is in this presence and absolutely supersonically overwhelmed and cries out, Woe am I! I am ruined, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's not isolated. Ezekiel had his turn too, where he's in the presence of God with four awesome-looking creatures that also had wings and recovering themselves. And the expanse above God's presence is sparkling like ice, the Bible says, and awesome. Above the expanse is the very throne of sapphire, and high above the throne sitting on it was someone who resembled glowing metal and fire. Brilliant light surrounding him like a rainbow. The appearance of God's glory. And then, at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelations, John has his turn in the throne room of God. And he describes it as a place that has no walls and no ceiling. A floor, a ceiling, like liquid glass. Again, the radiance of God. Again, power displayed in light. Again, the throne is surrounded by heavenly beings. And again, special living beings are before him, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Interesting that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is no change of God. God is spoken of as holy. So what are we looking at right here with these portions of Scripture? How can we kind of dial that in a little bit so you and I can appreciate it just a little bit more? God is described as holy. That means there is no one like him. He's perfectly pure, 
perfect in power, and he eclipses everything. He stands alone. He is uncomparable to anything else. He is the creator. All else stacked up against him counts for nothing. Utter perfection. And he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is everywhere at the same time. He is simply beyond our sense of measurement and definition and imagination. Actually, scholars call this the otherness of God. This, when you see the presence of God, you can't digest it in your mind. You can't isolate it into columns. Things that you see and you sense things that you can't perceive. He's got all the keys and holds all the doors and that as well. He is absolutely supremacy. His supremacy is absolute. And yet we think when we look at this image, it almost looks kind of scary. As if God is trying to have a personal agenda of intimidating everybody in his presence. That is scripturally incorrect. What God is simply doing is just being himself. He's not putting it on. It's just, if you could imagine God actually just relaxing, just being himself, this is just what happens naturally. It's not put on. It's not contrived. It's just who he is. God is holy, and there is no one like him. This is where we get to the heavy part of it. When we see God in this way and we see that there's a massive separation between you and I, or not you and I, I mean us and him, that in that context there's a heaviness that comes with it. And theologians call that the weight of glory. This beauty and this absolute immaculate perfection Perfectly, perfectly beautiful and wondrous and pure with every concept that would be avoiding any sense of fault or wrinkle or shame. In a light of that, we see God is unapproachable. And he says, it says in the Bible, he lives in unapproachable light. Consider this, those mighty beings that are in God's presence, they're pure, they're holy, they're powerful. But... In his presence, they shield themselves. Why do they do that? Because they feel their own sense of unworthiness in a light of absolutely mind-shattering perfection. Holiness drives a sense of separation from him and all else. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteousness, our acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away in light of his perfection. Christianity has got to be one of the most negative things on the planet. I mean, think about it. Every other religion gives you some sense of hope that you can do something about earning favor with God. Every other religion has that. Christianity does not. I was in a mosque years ago, and they were very, very kind to bring me in, and they, I wanted to hear from my own self what they believe. I didn't want to read about it. I actually went and they talked to them, and they were very gracious, and they expelled it down for me. And in a very oversimplified way, it boiled down to basically this. It's a report card session, this life. And at some point, you're going to stand before Allah, 
And at that point, you will know if you've passed or not. Perhaps you've done enough good things to prayer and do the pilgrimage and the special things that go on in their faith. A true follower of Islam, hopefully that beats out all the negative things that they have done. And they're allowed to go into that heaven. But I understand this from Scripture. That I'm guaranteed three things. I'm going to pay taxes. I'm going to die. And I will not see God. I don't have to worry about figuring out if I will or not. I know I won't. And when I told them that, they're like, well, why don't you become one of us? It was a gracious opportunity. But I didn't tell them the other half where I could know for certain three things, that I'm going to pay taxes, I'm going to die, but I will see God because of Christ Jesus. Amen? But nonetheless, in that sense, there is nothing else like Christianity in that regard. It's unique. God is unapproachable, impossibly far away from us. Even in the sciences, there's a sense that we can become better through time and evolution. Or perhaps through the cosmos, we'll be able to reach other intelligent life that will give us some quantum jump in technology to some higher sense of elevated consciousness. Even there, there's a sense that we can make it on our own. But that's not the case. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can stand in any way in comparison to him who alone is holy. If the angels can't do it, How about you and I who are naturally corrupt, who are moral train wrecks? How can we stand before absolute perfection? Please listen to these words. I don't mean it to be derogative. It's just simply the fact that considering God's perfection and the weight of glory, I am screwed. And I mean that sincerely. I actually thought about it for a long time. Like, yeah, I'm going to use it because it fits. No wonder nobody wants to talk about holiness. Perhaps then the agnostic is correct, who believes or doesn't believe technically, but what he has perceived or she's perceived is considering the question of God's existence is a mute point. It doesn't matter if he does or doesn't exist because he's clearly not involved in my life. So what difference does it make? Perhaps his holiness That separation that's there keeps me infinitely far away from him. And if that's the case and that's all there is, does it really matter if he exists? It's an interesting point. Einstein, in his form of pantheism, doesn't differ that much at all. For him, though, he was convinced of God's existence because he saw the marvel and the ingenuity and the intelligence behind the cosmos. And he believed in the existence of God, but this God, whatever it was, couldn't possibly be personal because of the injustices and the wars and the failings of man and the poverty and the starvation that we have. If God was indeed involved personally, he would have done something about it. Even the psalmist had the same question. In Psalms 8, we find these words. When I consider the heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings, that you should care for them? Perhaps the distant stars are symbolic of God's unfathomable immensity and the unreachable distance between him and us. 
perhaps right now we need a break. It's heavy, isn't it? Perhaps at this point we can take a little holiday and just sort of change the pace for a moment and have a little bit of fun. Since we're talking about stars, let's consider how we can touch the stars. I mean, from the point of view of NASA. You probably didn't see that coming, but here we go. Let's roll with the first slide. Most people think that missions to space begin with a final countdown and a thunderous roar along an atmosphere-splitting trajectory to space. That is incorrect. Every completed heavy lift rocket system, particularly the Apollo missions and the shuttle missions, begins its missional journey to space slowly and quietly along a gravel road called the Crawler Way. The Crawler Way is super thick. Seven feet of crushed gravel, a thick layer of concrete, and then on top of that, another layer of special rock that has a low spark rate called Alabama River Rock. The journey to space starts on a country road. Next slide. The only vehicle that can travel the crawlway is, you would never guess it, the crawler. It weighs 6 billion pounds. It's 50 years old. And the guys at NASA laugh about it. They say that thing's going to last another 50 years. It's virtually indestructible. They say it's so overbuilt, it's ridiculous. To the point that it really is a technological wonder. It's crazy, this machine. Next slide. Oh, we are on the next slide. Awesome. The crawler can carry the entire 12 million pound shuttle and launch platform effortlessly and a shuttle to carry even heavier and bigger loads as much as 19 million pounds in the future Martian expeditions that are slated. Next picture. I love this picture. The crawler carries both the rocket and the actual launch pad and has a capacity to have a total weight of 25 million pounds to this absolute huge bulk and mass of transport and payload, the crawler has a unique boast of field efficiency of 350,000 liters per 100 kilometers. We have some environmentally uh, excitable people in our family, and they kind of scoff at me when they look at my truck because it does 12 liters per 100. Well, let me tell you something. 350,000 versus 12 liters? Give me a break. I'm fine. You know, I just got to stop and look at this picture for a second. It just geeks me out. Look at that fire truck. It's like a pop can. But what really freaks me out about it is it's not the whole picture. It's zoomed in. You're missing the, almost the entire rocket itself. You know what? If there was another existence I could have, I would work for NASA. Every day would be like, I don't know, Christmas to me. I get to go to work today. How cool is that? Could you imagine standing beside something like that? The picture obviously can't do it any justice. Next slide. The crawler is six. The crawler way, sorry, is six kilometers long, and can take as much as a full day for the heavy lift rocket to cover the distance to the launch site. Apparently, a rocket fully loaded with explosive fuels is kind of technical, so they take their time. Next slide. The crawler and crawler way is a foundation 
and the starting point for any space mission. Understanding the holiness of God is fundamentally similar to the crawler's function. God is holy. And like the crawler, God's holiness is a supporting construct that supports and carries us to a new identity and transformation. God's holiness is heavy and enduring, but it is the vehicle to our hope at the same time. For man's sinfulness makes it impossible for him to attain friendship with God. And because of our moral failings, the crippling nature of it, it condemns us to death. But since God loves us, he did something for us by reaching out to us so we could reach back to him. The journey of our freedom starts off slowly and quietly. God sent his son, 100% man and 100% God at the same time, of a virgin birth. Jesus joined our humanity. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He joined our humanity and shared our struggles and faced temptation and yet without sin. Christ's life was a slow and quiet journey carried by God's holiness down his own crawler way to the cross, our launch point. And at the cross, Christ suffered death that we deserved. But the power of God is the fuel that launched Christ from the grave, giving us new hope, a new perspective, and a new life, bringing us to a new frontier in his presence. We are now free, figuratively speaking, to touch the stars, removing ourselves from the gravity of our own sin. When I think about that image, those celestial pictures that we have in Ezekiel and Isaiah, the Bible talks about whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, think about it. I'm kind of a visual learner. I constantly actually think about that from time to time. I see myself and you walking past these mighty beings who are shielding themselves from God's presence. But you just walk past them as if the air around you is comfortable and sweet. Just like going into the room of your newborn baby when they're asleep, that, that sort of that quiet anticipation to see them quiet and resting. That's what it feels like as we walk into unapproachable light. And at some point, we stand before him and look him in the eye, looking him in the eye, and say, Father, I've come home. We belong with him because Christ has made it possible. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Actually, a lot of this service actually kind of copycats a little bit what Pastor Joel said last week. When he was done preaching last week, I actually looked at Lauren and says, I guess I don't have to preach next week. We'll just stream Pastor Joel's message again. Here we have the same scripture verse again and some of the illustrations yet to follow. But it bears in mind that it's worthwhile seeing some things twice. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And right behind that, a few verses later, we have this. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You know what? I want to move away from 
the whole concept of, uh, of rockets and quickly to adoption. And it's simply this. I know a thing or two about adoption. And it's an interesting concept. I have been adopted. My last name kind of tells the tale. But even when my second father passed away, um, my mom eventually remarried another guy. Awesome guy's name is Harry. And Harry and his first wife, Dorothy, who he loved very much, she passed away as well. He was a widower. Um, they had four natural children and a whole string of adopted kids. Well, not adopted kids, but foster kids. But there was one child in particular that they kind of latched onto, and they chose her, and they adopted her, and she's of Cree Nation. So he's got his family. My mom's got her family. And now it's a second marriage for both, and these families crash into each other. Just a mess of adoption and second marriage. It kind of seems dysfunctional, doesn't it? Can that work? A couple weeks ago, during um, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, we were playing this game called Pig. It's kind of hard to explain. There's about 20 of us around the pool table. You've got to move fast. It's a process of elimination. Running around that table, you couldn't tell who was who. You couldn't tell who's Ukrainian, First Nation, or German. I want you to listen to me. My brothers and sisters aren't just German. They're Cree Nation and Ukrainian. How cool is that? That is actually my family today, a process of adoption. And what's even more cool than that, my mom gave me a copy of her will, which I eventually looked at. It's kind of sheepish, sheepish about it. You'll never guess who I share an inheritance with. Germans, Cree Nation, and Ukrainian. A legal family. That's what it is like for us in Christ Jesus. I actually have so much more message. I'm going to have to ignore most of it because I realize I'm out of time. But I want to tell you something. I'm going to end with this quick story. I've mentioned it a few times before, but never in front of you. What is church after all? We're talking about the holiness of God and his transformating work in our lives. But that transformation isn't just mine. It's not just my identity. It's our collected identity. I had a, a senior who, or an individual in our church that I grew up in. Uh, he eventually gave me a job. And um, when I started the job, I realized I needed to go to Bible school. Make a long story short, within 48 hours, I was accepted into Bible school. And now it's starting a brand new job. I had to go into my boss's office and say, I got to quit. And I did that. I went in the office and told him that. And he took it personally. He goes, look, Harvey, I, you got no forklifting experience or nothing. I took a big chance on you. You just walk in my office and you quit two days later? Well, did I do something? You don't like me? I go, no, no, I, I like you, Mr. Stein. You're, you're a great guy. And he goes, well, is it someone else rubbing you the wrong way? No, the guys in the back are good. Even the front desk guys are okay. And he's like, well, do I not pay you enough? I'm like, well. You can always pay me more, but that's not the reason. And he goes, well, what is it? So I told him the whole story. And uh, by the time I was done, he had a tear running down his face. And he says, he said this to me. He goes, you're not quitting. I refuse that. You stay with me now. And I looked at him and went, I don't think that's how it works. I'm here to make a statement. It's not a dialogue. He goes, no, no, you're staying. I go, but I'm going to school full-time, and 
and, and this is a full-time job. He goes, don't worry about it. I'll manage it. I, I, I don't understand. How can you do that? And he goes, look, go to school, figure out your hours, come back, tell me the hours you can have, that you have for me, and I'll take them all, and I'll do it. And I looked at him, I go, I, I don't understand. He goes, listen, you think it's a mistake that you're here in this yard? Do you know how many guys have, have put through Bible school by working for me? You think it's a mistake? He said, the Lord has blessed me with this business, but I know that God has given this to me as a mission to take care of guys like you. You're not leaving, he said. And I was just like, I, I, I don't get it. And he says, look, from now on, just between you and I, the yard works around you, not the other way around. I'll go back to work. I shuffled my feet out of that office, and I shut the door. I was thunderstruck, and I also felt 11 feet tall. You want to know why? Because I actually felt genuine love from someone in my church family. It's church is you and I. It's not us just being physically in this building. At any point of contact, we are family all the time. Amen? It is that we're welded together by the holiness of God that we have as our basic construct that we all can stand on. And I have your back and you have mine. Amen? It's not just preaching and worship. Yes, that's important. But they will know you are my disciples if you have but love for one another. I have so much more to say, but we're going to leave it with that. The holiness of God translates supernatural change in you and I. It changes us into something that's unique and beautiful. A separation, yes, from the things around us but a closeness and a definition that we have in actual truly belonging with the King of Kings. We have an inheritance. You have one. I don't even have the chance to even show you my football jacket, which is really a shame. Because, Well, okay, I'll just do it real fast. Uh, now we're talking. It's, uh, I wouldn't call that a tear. That's patina, okay? This jacket, this jacket is a winning jacket. I have never lost a football game playing for the Harry and Titans. Never. That's not being arrogant. That's a fact. I belong to a winning team. I actually played for the Huskies as well. When they're building, we were the worst ranked team in the country. I learned what defeat was with them for sure but not with the Titans. You and I belong on the same team. It is a winning team that has no losses. Do you understand? It sits concrete on the foundation of God's holiness in our lives. A supernatural change, a practical change, a victory in our marriages and in our thoughts and our lives. Dealing with depression, I'm going to tell you something. You've won. You've won. And even with death, you're just going home. You cannot be defeated. Why? 
because you are holy in his sight. There is nothing like us when we're with him. And I can't take any credit of it for myself. It's because of the love of Christ that changes us. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you give us change, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd be willing to commit ourselves to you and and throttle up, Lord, and commit our lives to you. Lord, there'll be some here that maybe have never heard this message before. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in their lives even now. Lord Jesus, that they will realize that they ha- you have a mission for them, Lord, to take them to a place in your presence, Lord, not just after death, but right now to have heaven in our hearts. Lord Jesus, Lord, have your way. And Lord, for some of us, as our initial scripture says, the path of holiness is like a war. It's, it wars against us, Lord. And sometimes we leave compromise come into our hearts and our lives in what we do or the entertainment we have or a hundred other things that can pull us away from you. Lord, help us to rethrottle back up again and recommit ourselves to you and lay those things that keep us away from you at your feet. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us to a new identity, a new transformation and a victory that belongs to us. I want to just take a moment now, because we're going to come into a very, very special time. It's called coffee time. And in light of what we've said, it is a mission. I don't mean it lightly for you to rub shoulders with other people. It's critical. It's important. And it's fun at the same time. But first, if you in your heart, you've been struggling with things, and you want to give it to the Lord and say, Lord, please take this away from me. The God of the impossibility, please draw me back. I lay these burdens before you or these obstacles that I'm dealing with in my own heart that keep me away from you. Lord, I give them to you now. If you have that, please raise your hands and just say, Lord, I release that now in your name, Lord Jesus. I'm not even looking at myself. You do it as you to yourself. And if you have not received Christ into your life, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands too. No one's looking around. I'm not looking around even now either. It doesn't matter. It's between you and him. And just say, Lord, take my life and make it beautiful. Draw me closer to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would deal with us, take away our sin, and thank you for the living hope that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.